0: Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Eight Minute, Increment Vice, All The President's Minutes and more.
1: And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together.
0: But we're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. With the highs of delicious tacos and the lows of a nighttime assault and then potentially being drowned, it is with chapter three, we come to a show and especially an after show that has a motherfucker of a cliffhanger, which really I forgot about in preparation for this episode and was just like reading everything back and am deeply stressed now that I can't just talk about <laughs> chapter four. So fuck you very much. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you again. Um, this book is a ripper and it has so much in this chapter. And I think this is my favorite chapter so far, just the breadth of what you're doing and the characterization of Kaya and just everything that's going on. Um, and there is so much of you uh, especially in Cabbie smacking um, her girlfriend on the ass um, as she's exiting a venue um, uh, that I want to discuss. Maria Lewis, thank you uh, uh, for, for for writing this. Thank you for coming up with this idea, and uh, it's good to it's good to be back with you.
1: Thank you. What an introduction. Actually, it's funny you say that because my first note for this section was, wow, a lot of shit happens in chapter three. <laughs> <laughs> Like, we fucking really run the gambit, man. Like, you know, we get, we meet her father properly for the first time. We get to go to like a, a seminal sort of set piece in AstroTurf and we get the interaction with the ex boyfriend. Like, there's just so much shit happens. Interaction and then with the ex boyfriend and then the girl.
0: Then the girl's talking about her and her hiding. That's very you, oh, by the yeah. way. Um, yeah, hiding about that actually and happened. I 100% know that that scene happened. I, I know. I know. I'm, I'm sure it did, but it's like, it's, it's, it's so loaded with stuff. There's so much going on. And I know that we have um, a wonderful chat coming up with Amanda Wilkinson um, from um, Bussy Love and from Operator Please. Uh, and she's really amazing at contextualizing the nightclub scene, I guess, for musicians yes. on the Gold Coast. So I, yes. I, I'm going to try not to cover too much of that with you. I'll let, I'll let that introduction um, happen as, as we digress there. But I just want to talk about so much about Kaya and it's so funny. You could not write this shit and it feels like this is the shows that I'm on at the moment, whether it's the podcast, or whatever. It's like I'm reading this and knowing you personally and knowing you better and even knowing things that we've even talked about that happened in your life way after this. This feels like it's got the same energy of like toxic, (laughs) shitty guys, really (laughs) shitty, awful people saying bad things behind your back. And like it feels very on brand for you. (laughs) I I,
1: and I thought you were gonna say, like, you know, it's a bit of a chaotic mess of a life. And I'd be like, oh my god, hashtag (laughs) representation. Hot messes too. Yeah, I mean, definitely, but also sort of trying to tap into to keep in, in like contextually to keep in mind that Kaya exists within she's a big fish in a small pond on the yeah. Gold Coast and the Gold Coast is full of a lot of big fishes in a small pond right so if you're famous on the Gold Coast in the way that Kaya is as a professional athlete and as someone who has courted controversy with the court case surrounding Bre death then it feels like unlike it would somewhere else. If yeah. she had gone through those same things in Sydney or Melbourne or even Brisbane or Perth, it would be a different experience that she is her reality every day. But the Gold Coast being the way that it is, very insular sometimes, um, what that means is, you know, she does hear people talking shit about her to her face and behind her back. She does get, you know, ties slashed and like, rock up to places and feel like people's eyes are on her. She can't move through that city unseen um, with the exception of at nighttime, I guess, when, you know, we get to that a bit later on, but it was trying to sort of capsulate not just the toxicity of that situation, but how her position in the city of like being that sort of type of um, almost like a C, C or B list kind of celebrity In the same sort of way, um, (laughs) what's that AFL player who has big hair and wears tight pants, Wayne something? Warwick Kappa. Warwick Kappa, yeah, there we go. The mayor of
0: the Gold Coast and his tiny (laughs) shorts.
1: Dude, he showed up at my 21st. It was so bizarre. I don't know him. Okay, okay,
0: okay, okay, okay. (laughs) Stop. Let's paint a picture. Warwick Kappa, famed AFL footballer, Mm. also famed producer of his own sex tape famed uh attempted mayor of the gold coast regularly um and and too long short short wearing man rocked up at your 21st where was your 21st
1: it was at this place called swinging safari which doesn't exist anymore i had been very set on not having a 21st i didn't want one i didn't want a big party nothing like that but um it was not what I, about what I wanted. It was about what my mother wanted. I was just who had say, organized? Twice. <laughs> she organized a surprise party at Swingin' Safari, which used to be a house. It was like a derelict, rundown house occupied by you know, like homeless on the Gold Coast. And somebody bought it. It doesn't exist anymore, but turned it into kind of like a a party house like a licensed party house so it had all the same structures of a regular house it was literally a library in there and everything it was just like one of the few places you could go on the gold coast that wasn't a seedy nightclub it was just like a pretty good chill fun vibe and so you had the 21st there my mum was sloshed at the time and um was somewhere else like she just disappeared with a bunch of her people It, it gets worse than that but we'll keep that for a different show And then we were like in this like sort of back room, and just Warwick Kappa was there in leopard print tights. I'll never forget it. And one of those singlets, you know, those singlets that drop really low on boys so you can see their nips. One of those, and a um a young lady. It was just one of those random things, and he was just like there having a cupcake and stuff. And like I cannot stress how much I don't know him. Like (laughs) he was just there. I was like I genuinely was like terrified for a minute that my mom might have been dating him and like hadn't had forgotten to tell me but he was there with another woman so I was like oh thank god that's like <laughs>
0: oh god <laughs>
1: one now, bullet dodged
0: now i think just geographically there's a really interesting thing about you know when you're talking about other cities um like let's say, for example, Los Angeles, which does have a coastline, the sprawling coastline and the sort of the sort of outcroppings of different parts of the city and different hot spots that happen in this big sprawl, much like Sydney, you know, you can you can go out into c- city of Sydney, you can go out in Parramatta, you can go out in sort of Cronulla, you can go out in North Sydney, like there's kind of like different hot spots around. And if you in certain areas, your orbit can change. Like if you had a controversy and you lived in North Sydney, you just go to Cronulla from then on or go to the city and maybe like not Uh, be in the same scene but geographically the Gold Coast just as a hub all of the action happens in that one spot that beachside run of you know you know incredible buildings and like actually the hub that even if you're trying to escape the orbit which she can't because her dad KC owns a massive beachside house so she basically is in the the thick of it but it's like she has to go out into the suburbs to find any anonymity and run around the lakes and stuff like that which we'll talk about but just geographically just know that She can't escape it. She's in the hub. And then when she goes out on the town, that's out in the hub. And it's like all the people who are going to be, she's going to be around, they're going to attract attention, going to attract tourists, going to attract any kind of papping. And we've got some, you know, forthcoming episodes. You guys are going to hear of us talking to journos, like other than Maria, who are on the ground in the Gold Coast. But it's like, that's just one thing. It's like, it's inescapable if you live there to go to a, there's not like a Western huge night spot that people can go, oh, I'm going to get away from the main night spot.
1: Exactly. And the thing that I fo- totally forgot, like just even when I was sort of explaining Kai's status in the culture, like five minutes ago, is that her dad's famous too, you know, mm-hmm. like there are entire, um, there's like an entire tier of a uh, Gold Coast celebrity who is, I am offspring of said famous parent. And we made the comparison back in the chapter two bonus ep that Casey, her dad is basically like a Mark okalipu equivalent, like an Oki type. And, because of that as well, it's like just... How good
0: and leathery is. is Marco Calippo's face? It's one of the greatest faces of all time.
1: <laughs> I mean, he's a professional surfer. <laughs> he's experienced a lot of sun and salt. Like, that's how <laughs> professional surfers look, especially like Australian men of a certain age. But um, the other thing I just want to quickly say that in Chapter 2 when um, they mentioned the character called Testies, um who like the guy whose nickname is testes ball bag. Um Ballbag as well bb which Baby. was his other nickname mm-hmm. those are based on real people <laughs> like not specifically those nicknames but there were people i grew up with who had the nickname Scrope, Piers, and beanbag are or well, just bean for short but like those were the people that bean. i use um
0: bean for sure i can up. imagine someone going what do you call him bean beanbag Testies. he's a Ballbag." Yeah.
1: He had massive balls, and that's how he got the nickname. And it's like <laughs> you don't realize that stuff until older, and you're like, that's really fucked up. Um, but also the person that uh that Casey learns the breakfast burrito recipe off, Uli, is uh, a little shout out to my friend Hal Lottekefu, who hosts the Triple J Hip Hop Show, and his brosef, um, Uli Lottekefu, who is the first person to get killed by an alien um, in the universe of aliens. He's he's a really incredible actor. And I think he's playing the young rock in a TV series coming up soon or like a t- rock in his twenties. Anyway, that's unrelated, but just like little <coughs> Easter eggs um, for those of you out there. But the thing about the nightclub stuff and what you were saying about like where you can go on the Gold Coast, where storm plays astro surf and you know this is bridging into the conversation we'll cut to in just a few secs with amanda but it is a specific move it's closer to the coastline and closer to the new south wales queensland border where the vibe is distinctly different from that which you experience towards the northern end of the gold coast the surface paradise the Southport, that kind of thing And the kind of bands and musical acts that play there, even though Astro Surf is a fictional venue, as you'll hear in our chat, it was based on a place called uh, Neverland, which is now called Rattlesnake. And the kind of bands that were played there and the type of music and just the general vibe was very specific. And instead of me sort of telling you what that's like, um, we'll hear from Amanda now, who is the singer, songwriter, frontwoman of a band called Bossy Love, who are, fucking incredible mm-hmm. i always describe them as sounding like if salt and pepper made music today that's what they would sound like um she also featured on josie and the Podcasts, the other show that blake and i do and she was the founder of front woman singer songwriter guitarist of teen sensations operator please amanda welcome to the show Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us from Copenhagen. Like, <laughs> so exotic. wait, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oui, wait! Oui. I don't know. Uh, they don't speak French in Copenhagen, but. Um, I say, yeah, yeah. That's how you say oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, so the reason I wanted to have you on, um, on this section of the show specifically was because of the point And it came from the deep that we get up to the the main characters are sort of heading to this venue, uh, which in the book is called Astrosurf, which is a fictional place that doesn't exist, but it is based on a place that we used to frequent quite a bit, um, for different reasons. You as a performer, me as a journo. And to the point where like I base the whole layout and structure of this fictional Astrosurf on this place, then forgot the fucking name of it and I had to send you a message. to be like, wait, do you remember that place that everyone used to play secret shows in Cooley? What was it called? And you were like, yeah. Neverland, question mark, yeah. um, which is now called Rattlesnake. So from, from a performer's perspective, what was the point? Uh, and I'm, I don't mean it like a negative way. I'm like, what's the point of Neverland? But like when I was an entertainment reporter, Neverland used to be the place that I would end up on like weird nights, like a Monday night, a Tuesday night, a Wednesday night. You'd hear like, Hey, X, Y, Z persons doing a secret show. A lot of times it would be operator, please. But also I went to secret shows there from like Wolf Mother and Fairchild and Angus and Julia Stone, I think did a set there, which was quite unusual because they're quite lo-fi. It tended to be people who had like louder music than like, you know, singing about the Chateau Marmont. Um, But as an artist, what was the purpose? I don't know. I guess because it was
2: like, it was quite, you know, it was a respected venue really. And not to say that nowhere else in the Gold Coast was a respected venue, but it was the only kind of club venue that was like down that end, that was cool, that it just had the right vibe. Do you know? It was just, it was like a bar. It was a good bar. And you know, it was known for having good DJs and playing good music. And then so when it came to doing like smaller venue shows, it was already it already was the part, you know? It already was it already looked like a really nice small venue. Everything was super clean. The stage was you know, it was simple. Um and the setup was really good. Uh whereas Uh, And it was quite intimate, you know, and I think like for other venues on the coast, it was like the big massive stage with the barrier in the front. And that doesn't like create a very intimate vibe, you know, and also it wasn't just a room where there was a random stage in the middle of it, which they're like, yeah, play a show where it doesn't actually feel like you're in a venue. Neverland felt like a venue.
1: Yeah, and I, for, I used to have to write the entertainment guides um, for the Gold Coast Bully back in the day. So you would get really familiar, not just because you'd have to go to shows to review them or interview people or to have context for features, but you would get familiar with those venues because you're always writing them up and the kind of acts yeah. there would be specific and like Miami Shark Bar was always the one. Shark Bar was always up there. But you're (laughs) right about what you say about Neverland being cool because it really was. It was actually a cool venue at a time on the Gold Coast when there weren't Mm people. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't mean that to be disrespectful, but it was like kind of the only cool venue when there were no cool venues on the GC. Yeah, I mean there was also
2: elsewhere which was in surface but they did they focused a lot on house and dance music and only started to do gigs like a little bit later. Um but yeah, Neverland actually felt like a proper uh, a, a proper venue and you know and it was easy to decorate and stuff because it was just like a black backdrop and it had great lighting and you know, it had like a wee balcony at the top. So it kind of reminded you of like a bigger theatre venue, but very small.
1: Yeah, it gave me, um, this is like, you sound maybe a bit wanky, but it kind of gave me like Troubadour vibes in LA. Yeah, it does. It does. Like, like totally. a compact Troubadour. Like it wasn't the newest or the fanciest, but it really was intimate. It had, like you said, the wee balcony and that sort of two-story vibe and like that thin staircase that went up the back. But it was like, if you were going to see a band play at Neverland, you were going to see something special. You weren't going to get the same show that they were going to be playing on, you know, the rest of their tour. No, because I think just the vibe was a lot better.
2: And like, yeah. And the owners uh, were, the owners at the time were like very young. So they were kind of the same age, same age as me type thing. So they were clued in and they just had a really good vibe about it. They knew how to run their, you know, they ran their shit properly. And they ran their shit like, yeah, they just knew what they were doing, really. Is
1: there a particular venue um, when, you, when Operator Please was active, sorry, the ARIA award-winning Operator Please, when you guys were active and, like, playing in it about town, was there a particular type of venue that you liked to play um,
2: yeah, I preferred like the actual venues that were designed to be venues rather than just the places which had a like free hall where you'd put a stage, you know, and then like wheel in the sound desk and shit like that. Yeah, the venues are you could actually where it was a proper venue. Um, Neverland for that reason was became the my be- my favorite venue on the coast to play. I would have preferred to do, you know, the bigger shows there even.
1: Yeah, and it was also that you mentioned earlier about it being like down the end of the coast so if people don't know Coolangatta is right on the Queensland New South Wales border I uh-huh. think the Cooley maybe is sort of really the only other that's like yeah area I guess there's a, there was a roller skating yeah. rink that would occasionally have live music but it was different yeah. <laughs> Kind yeah, it was a different style of, uh... <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah, there was, um, yeah, there was like the Kulangata Hotel, which was, you know, that was the way you played if you played a Gold Coast show, pretty much. And so I think like a lot of bigger bands would just skip the Gold Coast altogether.
1: How would you describe the kind of audience that you would find at Neverland or the kind of vibe?
2: Um, you know, was a lot of kids that I used to go to school with, to be fair. Hello, present. <laughs> so you'd see like a few kids from high school, but it was like, you know, people that genuinely just actually liked music and just wanted to go and dance and stuff. And mm. um, we're at Neverland. It wasn't like, you know, there was never anything hardcore happening. I mean, I, you saw the odd fight here and there from passing people out the front. It wasn't really like a place where people punched on either which is good because it's like it sucks not feeling safe going out and the, and playing shows and stuff. Um, a lot of other musicians also used to frequent the place because it was kind of the only place that had that vibe.
1: But, yeah, no, it's, it's a good point that you make about the crowd at Neverland because it was every time I would be there, I would always – and oftentimes I would end up going to Neverland by myself because it would be a work thing. So I'd be yeah. like, I'm there to concentrate, I'm there to see music, like – just to chill out, get the vibes, like all that kind of thing. But I would usually go by myself and then bump into people that I knew, people on the scene. And so it really was that place that that people gravitated towards, which I think is why I kind of like tried to see the vibe and the aesthetic <laughs> for the book. Cause it's um it's a unique place and it was unique to the Gold Coast and unique to the Gold Coast music industry specifically, which was um
2: Yeah. Yeah. And just like the party scene, really, it was just a place which it was good. If you wanted to have a few drinks, if you wanted to have dance, if you wanted to catch up with your pals and then, and then go home, like, you know, and you could spend all night there if you wanted to until the early morning. Like it was, it genuinely, like generally had a really good vibe and they, they also, so did other things like they did art exhibitions and things like that and fundraisers and whatever. So I guess it was, it did also have a real community feel, which is the thing that kind of goes missing when you live in like a city such as the Gold Coast, which is so spread out along the coast and, you know, everybody kind of doing their own thing. Certain industries are more um, popular than others. Um, So yeah, it was like it had community, it had a community sense about it as well. And also, it wasn't like age, like specific, because you would see you would see older people there, you know, and wasn't just like, and it wasn't just like really young people. You would see a whole mix of different ages, which I thought was nice as well.
1: Yeah, and also reflective of um, real, authentic music spaces. Like I always used to feel because I used to have to cover um, music festivals all the time to the point where I just, like, would rather have died than go to another music festival. Yeah, at that peak, when there was, like, 15, 20 a year, like, they don't really have, there's not very many festivals that have survived, but back yeah. then, there, like, the late noughts, there was just so many all the time. It was, and it was
2: all different, and it was thriving, and, I mean, all of it was so busy all the time. I don't think you ever went to a festival where it wasn't fucking packed.
1: No, and where there wasn't, like multiple tiers of acts who were interesting yeah, that like, I wanted to see. And international and big
2: name. It was like I never went to Blues Fest, but it always had a really good lineup. And I think the only festivals that I ever went to which I wasn't playing was, you know, I would go to one on the coast if it had a real if it had someone I really wanted to see and I couldn't see them any other way. Um, or I would always frequent Splendor in the grass because I feel like As a vibe, as a whole, the vibe there was quite good and and tolerant. Do you know what I mean? Other festivals, which we won't mention, where, like, you just feel unsafe. You can feel, you can feel, it's almost like you can feel a testosterone in the air or something. Like, people just really ready, wanting to fight. And, like, that still blows my mind that, like, even in in Australia, there's still that really strong, um, that kind of feeling there. Do you know? It's like... A bottle's um, about to get smashed and Biffo is going to yeah, be... Yeah, or just, like, something's about to kick off. Like, you can feel it. <laughs> you know, I was looking on, like, my friend's Instagram the other night and she just posted a story about it. she got egged on the side of the highway on the Gold Coast, oh. like, in oh. Palm Beach. And I'm like, it's that still fucking happening.
1: Army, army. Two, one, four, two.
2: Or whatever their fucking postcode like, was. is that still happening? People egging people from cars, like... I just, I can't fathom it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just like too old. <laughs> um, <laughs> so when you get older, you're just like, really? That hasn't stopped yet? Okay.
1: <laughs> I guess that's a pretty good note um, to leave it on. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, however briefly to talk about Neverland and talk about the Gold Coast music scene and coming up in it. Um, your band Bossy Love, their album Me Plus You is out now if people want to check that out. And you guys are also up for a Scottish Album of the Year award? Is that the right yes. phrase? Uh,
2: uh, yes, so we've made the short list, which is uh, 10 albums altogether and we're amongst some amazing Scottish talent. Uh, yes, I'm really excited about that. So, you know, send us your good energies and stuff.
1: Yeah, (laughs) cast a spell, line up my crystals. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's always a
2: pleasure.
0: I love the phrase in there a compact troubadour. Um, That you talked about with Amanda because it's just like it's really funny and interesting to hear about clubs and I know in Sydney and I know everywhere everyone's got one place that feels cool and feels intimate and just hearing Amanda talk about the experience you know black walls that you can decorate easily intimacy and and that kinship of the people in the town thought this place was cool. And musicians also thought this was cool just as like a, such a, like, it just gave me kind of pangs, especially in 2020 of like, man, I would love to go to a rock club and man, I would love to have a great, like a a great rock club. That's a small venue that kind of like, you got to be in it to win it, to kind of get there and see great sort of secret shows and these cool things. Cause a band like Operator Please or Bossy Love or, or like Wolfmother, as you mentioned in that interview, like they're they're like for the big stage. Like you're lucky to see, you'd be stoked to be in a mosh pit with those guys or at a big venue and to see them at like a little intimate venue where they can just blow your face off. Um, you know, that was something that like listening to anybody, I was like, man, I wish. And blow
1: your face off is right too. I remember um, when operator please played that Amanda's sister Elvira is this incredible, like stylist is the broad term, but she's like a graphic designer, like she just has an amazing visual eye and she had decorated, because they do have all those black walls and stuff, she had decorated the venue for like Operators, Operator Pleaser's specific aesthetic for their album Gloves, which was kind of like black, white, and silver was sort of the branding. And um, she'd done it with like all these balloons and stuff. And I just remember that so clearly and then juxtaposing that with times when you would go and see a Wolf Mother there or like a, a band called Bleeding Knees Club, for instance, which is pretty – significant, uh, not just to the story, but the band that uh, Storm plays in, the Dirty Boogs, which Boog is like short for bodyboarders. Um, and like, <laughs> not
0: you know, not 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 Dirty Boogs as in like boogies in your nose, but boog- dirty, boog- boog- boogs. dirty Boogs, Boogie Board Riders.
1: Two O's baby. But that band is sort of supposed to be a bleeding knees club type, you know, where they play really raw, they play really rough. It's like, kind of like surf punk, like a little bit.
0: Reminded of me BTS. of Parkway Drive in my head. That's how I thought. I don't know. like No,
1: Park- Parkway Drive's heavy. This is, These guys oh. are like surf punk.
0: Oh, surf punk. So, okay, cool.
1: Yeah, Parkway Drive is much more like teeter and closer to like epic metal in a way. Yeah. It wouldn't be dissimilar to see Bleeding Knees Club as the support act to somebody like Violent Soho, for instance, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. those kind of guys where the surf and skate culture uh, converges. But in the it came from the deep playlist um which we've linked to on previous shows and you know you it'll be access, in the show too yeah you can access it in various forms but i have like there's no ranking to the songs the songs that are in there are things that are either directly mentioned in the text or things that are sort of like relate to inspirations for various events and there's a song called rising water um by james vincent that is very like indicative of the mood and tone of It Came From The Deep, but also this song Like Magic by Operator Please, which was of their last album, Gloves, that really kind of sort of taps into the tone and the vibe of this scene and the themes of the book. Like there are other songs in there, like Dangerous Type, for instance, by Would The Which you
0: specifically reference, yeah.
1: Yes, which, um, you know, just like little trivia on trivia, the that song's probably most famously known for its cover, which was performed by Letters to Cleo and features on the craft soundtrack. She's a lot like you when they're all like (laughs) slow mowing through the school with that. So there's a lot of stuff like that where it's like,
0: I don't know if I want to play music under these episodes or just, I wish I could, I wish I could extract your versions of the songs.
1: I can hear how it sounds in my head and I'm fully conscious of the fact that it's like a mile away from how it sounds but the bands that are featured in that playlist not including the ones that are directly referenced you know there's Bleeding Knees Club stuff in there but there's Amy Sharp who's who's Mm. another like prominent Gold Coast performer we've talked about Angus and Julia Stone as well but people like Alex Leahy, uh, Xavier Rudd, Fairchild, June Rats even like there's just a lot of sort of there's a There's an audio palette, even though I'm conscious of the fact that it came from the deep is a visual medium in terms of (laughs) you need to use your eyeballs to read it, if that makes sense. But I feel like music can enhance a thing and enhance characters and enhance a story. And so I've always, I make playlists for all my books, but specifically with this, it's like, we're not just trying to show you this is the Gold Coast. We're trying to show you this is a specific part and a specific Gold Coast scene, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely, and we 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 cut to the great scene here, and and Kai's escape from a toxic ex who comes back and starts, you know, just thinking that everything can kind of start again, which is just insane. Chris
1: Ritter, what a piece of shit! Well, Absolutely, piece of shit. <laughs> His name is inspired by John Ritter. John
0: Ritter, who start- is a beautiful man. Beautiful man, John you,
1: Honestly, one of the nicest men in Hollywood, married to the absolutely, one of the nicest women in Hollywood and fellow Kiwi, Melanie Linsky. But obviously, um, his dad was a hugely influential and famous uh, actor and sitcom star, but he also features in the Buffy episode, Ted. And I think the reason he has the last, like her ex is called Chris Ritter is because I was doing a Buffy rewatch at the time. <laughs> and- Obviously like there's like Ritter Senior and I was like, oh yeah, Ritter works. You know, I'm always, I have that notes document in my phone with names first and last, usually last names are harder, um, that if, as they pop up or as I'm like, I haven't used that before, that's unique. I'll quickly type it into the notes doc in my phone so I can just tap into that bank when I need it because it's so hard genuinely once you, especially once you get to the point where you have, you know, eight or so books and short stories and whatever. And every character has to have a name that is not only important to them, but something that's like relevant to their culture or relevant to the setting, but not something you used before. And that can be so tricky. So you've got to keep like a Excel spreadsheet of that shit. <laughs> big,
0: big, big shout out to your notes. Um, if, if folks really love movie podcasts, uh, Maria and I both do back to back guest spots on the incredible total reboot podcast. The only podcast about movies on the internet uh with alexi toliopoulos and cam james and maria talks exactly about that one of her favorite authors thomas harris having mm. the just innate skill of coming up with phenomenal names francis dollahide clarice mm. starling jane gum adelia map oh. great double Freddie lounge Freddie Lounds, like
1: every he is so good thomas, king. this is how He's good thomas shit. harris is all his main characters have incredible names that feel familiar enough but also unique enough But then all of the supporting characters and minor characters have great names as well. Like, that's shit that people just fall asleep to that point. You know what I mean? They're just throwing (laughs) in random names in there, like Bob or Jeffro or whatever. Whereas he's like, he puts attention and thought into every name. Barney. 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 (laughs) Great. great. Love it. Krentler. Love it. Chilton. Love it. (laughs) Love
0: it. So we get this absolute uh I I accidentally said PO shit instead of POS before but like he is a, <laughs> he is a PO shit um uh Chris Ritter in this scene um and it's I just love you do really you do a really great rendering of disbelief like what it like not necessarily being hurt but being confused with like you are on another planet to me and I think you do that really great with Kaya and I think the pace with which you tell that you kind of don't let us get bored in the like the nonsense of the scene it's kind of like she's so out of step with this guy who's like yeah we could still be mates or whatever like I hope things are still good and yet like you have no idea what you have no idea what good is if you think that you abandoning me is going to be good. But then you move quickly because it it does have like a bit of a pang and it does sting a little bit. But I think the decision to like kind of tell that and then bang we're straight at training the next morning and thinking about Cabbie and her hooking up with uh, her her potential date, which is very fun. Imogen love it. Imogen Tiship, great freaking name. Excellent name. Thank you. But moving into that scene, I just, I thought, I wondered if it's like, you know, just from a pure craft perspective, is it really mindful of you in that moment to be like, as I'm writing this moment, which I know is going to sting that, you know, if that was a, if that this was a movie, this would almost be like a hard cut to the next day. um, mm. And, and making the choice where the hard cut is, you know, speaking in cinematic language, but that's the picture that's painted in my head. This is very cinematic of like, this is like, it does not compute. It does not resonate. You give me just enough space to register how hurt Kyrie is even by the, by the, mm. The inference that things are good, and then yeah. bang, it's like a hard cut to the next day. So, is that is is that something you've kind of learned, or how how did you how do you judge that yourself when you're writing it?
1: That's a great question and really well phrased. So, shout out to you and your skills. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: And today's show's (laughs) over, everyone. I think I'm good with uh, Compliment City. I'm out of here. Sorry, go on.
1: It it truly just depends on the context. I use context a lot, right? Context for song choices, context for even outfits and discussions with people. But in this case, it's context. By the time we meet Chris Ritter in person for the first time and we're not observing him through Kaya's memories, which is what has happened in the previous chapters, Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, we already have the context for how their relationship ended or like didn't end, if that makes sense. Mm. And how he had integrated himself into her life. There's a a line that Caddy says to her, I think it's in chapter two about how he will attach himself to any forward mobility. And that's not something that Kaya saw at the time. I think that relationship where, you know, it's the first person, a first guy that, you like who shows really serious interest in you when you're like in your teens, 15, 16, stuff like that, that relationship can feel really important in the moment and really seminal to the point that you're blinded from a lot of the reality realities of it. And he sort of attached himself to this well-known family, this prominent surf club and surfing culture, famous family like a barnacle and just sort of (laughs) ingratiated himself into her life in a way that, when there was at, when there were no stakes, you know what I mean. When there was like no stress about commitment or like what does this mean or whatever. We're just together for a few years, having a great time. You know, we're at, we are into the same stuff, but there's never necessarily that examination of what it is about this person that makes the two of you a great partnership. And when that splits, when there's the obviously all the Bree Tyler stuff, and he sides with the South African family without so much as a you know, I'm sorry, or, like, I think we need to take a break while you're being prosecuted for manslaughter, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is, like, a really, it's a really hard cut.
0: That's some, Ros- some Geller shit. We're on a break during your manslaughter trial.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard cut. Like, what you said, like, in the scene is a hard cut, but their relationship ending was a hard cut. Mm. So when he shows back up as if he wants to build a bridge to maybe restarting things. He sort of like watched and examined how the waters have turned, how the popular opinion has turned, seen an avenue for him to sort of like reinsert himself into her life and thought, maybe this is my opportunity. You know, he's an opportunist. Mm. So when we meet him and have that conversation with him, we already know those things and we've seen those things. We've been told them and we've been shown them. So after they have a tete to tete, there's no point staying in the moment once it's done. We already yeah. know how she feels and we've already seen her reflections. So pivoting right to the next day and training and the realities of her world, like the world just moves on. You don't have mm. a time to like, you know, fucking put on some um image and heap and like really like have a moment. <laughs> that is a
0: subtweet in the middle of this <laughs> in the middle of this conversation. I,
1: let me just say I love image and but like that's the breakup music you know mm, what you on. say <laughs> 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 you know what i mean so yeah. it's good breakup music it was either her or Dido, but it had to be like a particular brand of british emotional white woman
0: mm. you now let's cut to the final i guess the final segment you know stanza i guess of the chapter because it it really i she think it's that... real yeah, shit does get real because like you said, it gets hard cut back to life. Like you're no longer part of my life. I think the great, the great thing for Kaya, um, you know, obviously we get to meet Casey, her dad, and he makes those delicious tacos. And there's that sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, hangover moment with Storm watching Sons of Anarchy, which is very him and very Gold Coast of the time. So, you know, a great, a great sort of personality picture. in that What's little a show
1: you would watch with your brother and your dad. If it's not Sam Crow, I don't know what the fuck. It I don't know.
0: Is. <laughs> I don't know. And they're both going to like it. It's intergenerational. It's that um... or
1: Peaky Blinders. Those are your two
0: choices. <laughs> That's it. Um, but they watch the show together and they do their stuff, but just the, she's back into the rhythm of her life. Nothing is going to stop her from doing that. And she finds comfort and solace in it. So it's good to see her like running and things like that. And I must admit the following stanza of, it came from the deep, has made me much more uh, play music lower on my headphones. Running around the Gold Coast when I go there since you've written it, because you you combine two things. You combine an evening assault to someone who's unaware is in headphones. You combine a vengeance plot from South African guys, which you kind of like. It's it's obviously we don't know exactly who they are, but we know where they're from and 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 therefore who they are. But then you go to uh, a frantic. Thrashing potential escape, I dive into water, and then your worst fear, someone drowning you. So, like, did you just think, how can I think of all of the worst things that I'm scared <laughs> of and put them into one p- potential thing, an outcome for this character?
1: Yes, but also <laughs> it was like informed by lived experience to the point that that thing that you said about like you'll turn your headphones down mm. it is a little bit of a testament. To Kaya's privilege um, that she shouldn't be running with headphones in the first place. I'm not saying like you should be able to do whatever the fuck you want as a woman at night, but the reality is running with headphones puts you at risk. You know, like if I I never run at night because of things exactly like this. But if I was even walking home alone at night, I'm not, haven't got headphones in because I don't even even if I'm not playing anything or the music's loud or whatever, I don't want to visually communicate to somebody who might be watching me that my sense of hearing is impaired in any way, shape and form. I'm like always ready for a fight. So when I would be going jogging at dusk or in, in that general like time frame around the Gold Coast or whatever, I would always play these scenarios in my head of like what I would do to get away from an incident or like where would I flee? And because I used to do that jogging circuit around like, like humans or like palatz as it's called in the book, um, I always thought that the best way to escape was – I, I probably could, yeah. I probably couldn't outrun somebody or outfight them, um, but I could outswim them and like get into, get into an area that's deep enough that it would be my comfort zone and not theirs. So that's the logical thing in that scenario for Kaya to do because there's two assailants and it's dark. There's nobody around to help her, so she immediately turns to what she knows, which is and what she feels safe and comfortable in, which is the water and that particular world not knowing that there's something else there which will it help will it hinder i mean we find out spoilers it helps but (laughs) that sort of it was it was that sort of idea of like how would i escape in a particular scenario but then how would kaya escape in that particular scenario and i think that's a great fear for a lot of women is just fucking getting attacked (laughs) like yeah It's happened to every woman I know in one form or the other, let alone like when she puts her headphones in, yes, it's her privilege of just, you know, feeling safe and that she can move through the world as a white woman in a way that is not threatened all the time. But it's also a testament to her emotional state. She's not thinking clearly when she gets there and she goes to the lake and for a jog specifically to try and clear her head. And she partially does that with exercise and music and not knowing that you know the brothers too would be waiting for her and waiting for their opportunity
0: it's funny you said you know you stayed with us a few times um uh recently and i remember one ev- regularly in the evenings once our kids had gone down to bed i would go hey i'm going for a run and you're like oh you run at night you, and you're like, you son of a bitch. And I was, I fucking
1: the- love running at night. I love yeah, it so, so much. It's one of my favorite things, but I just, I literally can't do it.
0: And, and what was hilarious is I was so privileged as a man and a white man and a person who doesn't have to worry that I was running and listening to the Zodiac audiobook while I was running. And the
1: epitome <laughs> of white male privilege right
0: there. <laughs> and so even there was one time where like the book creeped me out and I had to turn it off and like just run with, nothing. Cause I was like, I can't listen to music. Yeah. I can't listen to anything, but it's just so funny that like, you know, this is, this is a different world. Um, and, and that fear of those things happening. And even, you know, it even, it, it even is guys that are vulnerable. Like my, uh, I, I had a I, I can say his first name, but like we had a great coach when I was doing um, jujitsu, who was our self-defense teacher. And so like one night a week, it, would, it wouldn't would be training drills. We would do like proper self-defense scenarios. And he was like an amazing self-defense guy because he was a former bouncer. And I think he worked in the police force at some stage of his life. And Kevin would be like, if you walk home with headphones and you're an idiot, like you're a target. Like, and he would talk about these sorts of things about like, if you're, he goes, if you're in a really familiar area, I get it, maybe one headphone and whatever, but he's like, Mm. you know, he's like, if you're a guy and especially you're walking home at night and you are by yourself and you're in an unknown environment, your headphones are not anywhere around like you are you're as free yes. as you can and he it's used to
1: visual communication as well like yes. not just the practicality of you can't hear but if somebody's watching they assume no yeah you
0: yeah. you can't hear and i think you touched on that too and it was just really interesting because you saying that but particularly him talking about is like you never have headphones in because and he's like and he used to tell people never have hoods up never have headphones in mm-hmm. he was lots of little like tricks and tips that he would talk about but it is just that practical self-defense of i like <laughs> it, like those things of like are you going to impede your vision are you going to not be able to hear are you going to have something it's just all those things that you know especially if you're comfortable you live in a regular safe suburb or you might live in a small town where you don't have have these concerns but particularly in some you know cities and states like you you can't do that um no you can't do um, that.
1: it's so our discussions about this is reminding me so hard of the john mulaney sketch where he talks about being a kid and then having a, a homicide detective come in who could like tell a child the price of their coffin just from looking at them, oh. and, he them street smarts! <laughs> and how he was like telling kids to have like a money clip that they could throw away to escape. Anyway, if you're a fan of John Mulaney, you know the bit that I'm talking about. Um, but even like when I was staying with you guys and I would finish work quite late or have to do an event or something for work and I would, get the train home and, you know, it's further out of Sydney than where I used to previously live where shops and stuff would be open at one or two in the morning. And so I'd have to walk from the train station to my car, which would be parked a few blocks away. And the only way to get there was like along this bit of the street and then you cut through this bit of the park. And I have carried a a switchblade with me for a long time. I'm actually after the thing that happened on the very first episode that I talked about getting attacked at night. And it's technically illegal, uh, as it is illegal to carry pepper spray. But I'm like, fuck it. Try and prosecute me for saving my life. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see you try. Like, I'd rather, like, I'd rather cop a charge um than For carrying your be knife, be dead. Yeah,
0: then be dead. Yeah, and, then be dead. Very but fair. I just
1: always have one with me for that exact reason. Because I'll, like, have my headphones off, be walking fast, and be looking like I have somewhere to go, which I do but to also just be looking alert and knowing that my hand is on the knife in my pocket if I need it, you know?
0: One thing I was going to ask you, this ends on like a colossal cliffhanger. Like she does, yes. you know, she she feels something is out of place. She's just one step out. She gets attacked. She's, she at least gets, relinquishes their clutches for just the briefest of moments to do exactly what you said, to, to, rehe- to do that rehearsed behavior of like get in the water. She gets in stumbles it's not happening she's being strangled and she's you know under underwater at least held underwater whatever however you want to call it but like she's she's in trouble she can't breathe she's underwater what made you then choose to cliffhanger it? Was that like, again, this is something I always wonder as a writer is like, did you like go, I'm cliffhangering it because like, I feel like that that's a natural moment in the story. Do you know where it was going next? Like, how did you make the choice? Cause I'm like, I always love that instinct of like, right now it's a cliffhanger mofos. Mm-hmm. And you're going to like, if you're listening to this audiobook and having to wait till next week um, and you don't have the physical copy, which you should have. But if, you, if, you're, if you're playing the agony of it, you are listening to that. It would
1: be so bad. would oh. be so bad.
0: I'm so mad because <laughs> I'm mad I'm mad that we can't talk about more afterwards
1: well the tagline for this book was always a murder a mystery in a moment and this book has a lot of, it is a mystery it's a science fiction mystery for all intents and purposes and I wanted there to be a doubt I wanted there to be a question about whether kaya feels like she saw what she saw amid all of the trauma and adrenaline of the event. It is, you have to pace, you have to pace yourself as a book, right? Book is like structured in three parts or whatever. I always know where things are going. I basically, they have this term called planner or pantsers and I'm in between. I plan the events of the book. I know that I have beats that I need to hit. Sometimes I have key phrases of dialogue or like a certain set piece that I know I want to include. I structure it roughly to where I want those things to go. And that's as far as I do it. And then I write the first draft. And so it's like, I have a skeleton and then the first draft is adding flesh to those bits. So I knew where it was gonna go, but it was about not necessarily dragging out the mystery of like what is in that lake, but making the audience be as curious and hungry and as excited and terrified as Kaya is to get an answer to that question. It's the balance of, do you really want to know what's down there and what will it cost you? It could cost you your life. Are you still prepared? Like, is that how much you're willing to pay for an answer to a question that maybe it's better not better to just not ask at all? Yeah. So I wanted to, I like to end each chapter with momentum. Now, whether that can be a physical event, it can't always be, obviously, or whether it's like, I think chapter two uh, chapter two from memory ends with her being like, and the South Africans are back in town. Like her life was about to get a whole lot worse or whatever. Like <laughs> It's like stuff is happening. So you need to finish the chapter with the reader feeling like there's stuff coming and immediately, not that it's going to happen in 10 chapters or five chapters or six, but that from the next moment you turn the page, that pace and that momentum is still pushing you forward like a locomotive And I want these books, all of my books to be the kind of thing that you're up till three or four in the morning reading, because you just have to know what happens next. I love those kind of stories. Like Charlene Harris, Rochelle Mead, like Daniel Jose Alder, Carrie Arthur, like, There are Kelly Armstrong as well. There are so many authors like that where I'm just like, I will just start this and I know regardless (laughs) of what I have on the next day, I'm going to be reading this until I finish it. And maintaining that sort of like feverish pace is something that I've learned just from loving other people's stuff.
0: Yeah, I I, I, I... It's it's good instincts. And obviously if you're um can you can you just explain? You you explained a planner, but pants are you mean on the seat of your pants? Is that is that yeah. kind of that? yeah, yeah, cool. Sorry, just yeah, a I didn't know
1: yeah, I didn't come up with the term. It's a term that um I think uh, now I don't know, but I feel like this is the accurate summation of the term. But it was a term that was coined in and around National Novel Writing Month, which we talked about in the prologue episode. This book yes. was written as part of Natno Ritmo. And they often talk about that in the context of National Novel Writing Month because people are either planners or pantsers and pantsers just like, I'm fucking starting it. But because a lot of my books require a lot of research and there's a lot of world building and linking up of timelines and characters and stuff like that. It's just who I am. Like I just, even an interview, I'll have a skeleton, like if I'm doing an interview with somebody, I'll have a skeleton list of questions with like maybe a little note, a that depending on the accent, um, depending on the answer, I'll make up a question on the fly, or I'll pivot to a different topic based on how that question was received, or if something's prickly, or if something they seem willing to talk about more than something else.
0: Yeah, I I, I completely agree. It's um I find myself in preparations You're a for po- you yeah. <laughs> uh, I I am I am a somewhat panther, but I there's a, elemental things like you know for example I've got you know about 10 notes just like little phrases and things from the chapter and from the amanda conversation that i you know wanted to talk about here and then i find myself better organically doing it i don't like to be too rehearsed so i guess i'm i'm right in between that because i i do like the foundations i do like to know what notes i'm going to hit so maybe i'd be like you I like what you said there it could just be a line of dialogue it could be a song it could be a, an image that you kind of kind of render i think that that's a it's a nice and interesting way to put it because obviously um you know we've got some mystery we've got some merman um and uh, we got a bit and we've got, we we got, got, got a little bit of attempted murder in yeah. the, in this scene
1: well it's like i'm coming up to writing the eighth and final book in this series at the moment in the supernatural sisters series and it's eight books it's um, it will be seven years or thereabouts um of that particular journey and so Obviously, there are key beats that I need to hit and key moments that key characters need to have after so long and so many stories and so many words. But it is, I'm like putting those things down on paper now and structuring, well, not paper, you know what I mean, in my notes. (laughs) It's in a word doc somewhere, but like I'm putting those things down now, thinking about them, toying with them, tweaking them and deciding where they'll go. So I have all the puzzle pieces and then I will start writing the book based on, what is there and what I know that I need to achieve to bring the story to not just a logical conclusion, but one that is hopefully satisfying. It's that balance of giving people, giving the audience what they need rather than what they want.
0: Well, what I want is to hurry up and get to chapter four. So um, thank you so much for listening. Everyone is listening to the show. Maz, thank you for the chat. It's been right. awesome.
1: It's lovely to be here. Thanks to Amanda for joining us. Huge thanks
0: to Amanda and Copenhagen, which uh, you tried to make even more exotic than it already sounds. Um, I uh, love
1: the idea of them saying like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: In every way that it was awesome she's 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 the best um but guys thank you so much for listening to the it came from the deep after show this has been chapter three um we've got some great guests on upcoming shows so please keep following along and obviously um you're hearing this on a wednesday if you're in australia maybe a tuesday if you're in the united states or some other parts of the globe um but uh, you'll be hearing the next chapter chapter four that ends this pain of a cliffhanger then and then we'll be back and i'll feel much relief thank you it Came From The Deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from best-selling author Maria Lewis. Read by Sophie Parr and produced by Adam Boys at Thaumaturgy Post-Production Services. New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations, and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Hit Minute Productions. If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights too, please like, subscribe, and share with your mermaids.